Good evening, you're very welcome. The Isaiah Berlin Lecture, given annually in memory of the college's founding president, the renowned philosopher and historian of ideas, is one of the most important events in Wolfson College's calendar. In tribute to Berlin's intellectual distinction and influence, some notable scholars, writers and thinkers have given this lecture, including Michael Ignatieff, Tom Stoppard, Roy Foster, James Billington, Amartya Sen, Honora O'Neill, Alfred Brendel, Helena Kennedy, Berlin's editor, Henry Hardy, and Anthony Appiah. Berlin's character, his writings, his voice, his thinking, and his influence have been close up in my ear and in my mind in the nine years that I've been president of this college. And one of my ambitions for Wilson from the start is that it should continue to remember and value its founding father. And I'm very pleased and honoured that the last Berlin lecture I will be hosting in my retirement year is to be given by the brilliant, elegant and humane philosopher of mind, Professor Galen Strawson. The links here go deep. He was a graduate student at Wolfson in the 1970s where he wrote his thesis on free will. His father, Peter Strawson, was a philosophical colleague of Isaiah Berlin at Oxford, and I am very lucky to know him as a friend. It is quite challenging to summarise Galen Strawson's life story and achievements. He holds the President's Chair of Philosophy at the University of Austin in Texas, and before that he taught at Oxford and was Professor at Reading and at CUNY, as well as having many visiting professorships. He's been a consultant editor of the TLS for many years, and he reviews and broadcasts often and is a philosophical blogger. He has written at least 10 books and a great many papers and essays, books on Hume and Locke, books on freedom, experience, materialism, metaphysics, personal identity, and tonight's theme, consciousness, which have shaped the way we think about how we experience our lives and our behavior. He is an analytical philosopher who is deeply immersed in literature and psychology. But the challenge for me in making this introduction is that Galen Strawson is also a non-narrativist. That is, a person who has no particular tendency to see his life in narrative terms. He doesn't think of life as a form of life writing, and he doesn't think our histories are narratives. He agrees more with Paul Clay that his self is a dramatic ensemble, or with Nietzsche, that the human being can shed seven times 70 skins and not be able to say, this is really you, this is no longer outer shell. He argues that most of us have, at best, bits and pieces rather than a story and no clear sense of who we are. Since I run a life writing centre here <laughs> and I'm very interested in storytelling and narrative, Galen Strawson's arguments are a perpetual provocation to me of the highest interest. So I am agog to hear his talk, whose title echoes both Garcia Marquez and Bertrand Russell, 100 Years of Consciousness, a long training in absurdity. Please make him very welcome. Thank you, Hermione. Good evening. Um, I was and am, and am extremely fond of Isaiah Berlin, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have been asked to give this lecture in his name. Um, I'm also happy to be back in Wilson College. Uh, Derek Parfit advised me to apply here for graduate work long ago, and I duly arrived in 1974, the year in which these buildings were first occupied. I profited hugely from the place and Berlin's magnanimous presidency, perhaps more than I should have, since I still thought I was a poet and took nine years to get a doctorate. Nine years. After that, the college featured in my life mainly as an unbeatable source of conquers for my children, so it's nice to return for a different purpose. I know this Berlin lecture is the last of Hermione's presidency, and I feel the pressure. The last time she and I had professional dealings was probably over 30 years ago. We would anxiously seek assurance and ruthless criticism from each other when our draft reviews for the TLS had been painfully and, in our opinion, gracelessly edited. Uh, so I look forward to her ruthless criticism today. 
so long as it's delivered in private. <laughs> and, and my thesis, in any case, is that there occurred in the 20th century the most remarkable episode in the whole history of ideas. A number of thinkers denied the existence of something we know with certainty to exist. Consciousness, conscious experience, uh, the subjective character of experience, the, ex the what it is like of experience. Others held back from the, the denial, as I'll call it, but claimed that it might be true, and that claim is in fact no less remarkable than the denial. How did this happen? I think that the denial has two proximal causes. The first is the rise, the rise of the behaviourist approach in psychology and its subsequent misappropriation by philosophers. The second is, uh, second is the spread of a wholly naturalistic approach to reality accompanied by a remarkable misunderstanding of what this requires. Uh, the, the, there's, the denial also has a third and deeper and darker and more distal root, something much larger and achingly familiar, the crookedness of the crooked timber of humanity. And what the denial shows, I fear, is that it's even crookeder, crookeder than you might ever have imagined. So I'm going to do some history of ideas um, and talk about the two proximal causes, and then I'm going to say something rather gloomy about the third deep cause. But first I need to say something about the thing that's being denied. Consciousness, conscious experience. Experience for short, what is it? Well, um, the answer is easy. Anyone who has ever seen or heard or smelt anything knows what it is. Anyone who's ever been in pain or felt hungry or satiated or hot or cold or remorseful or amazed, dismayed, uncertain or sleepy or has suddenly remembered a missed appointment. So one way to express the denial is to say that it's the denial that anyone has ever really had any of the experiences I just mentioned. So it's not surprising that most of the deniers deny that they're deniers. By the way, there are no pictures in this thing, I'm sorry. Um, of course we agree that consciousness or experience exists, they glows. But when the deniers say this, uh, they mean something quite different like the words consciousness or experience. They, in my terminology, they looking glass or reversify these words, where to looking glass or reversify a word is to use it in such a way that whatever one means by it, it excludes what it actually means. Well, who are these deniers? I have in mind at least all those who fully subscribe to something called philosophical behaviorism, all who fully subscribe to something called functionalism and the philosophy of mind. Few have been fully explicit in their denial, but among those who have, we find Brian Farrell, who was formerly a wild reader in mental philosophy in this university, Paul Feyerabend, uh, Richard Rorty in his younger days, and Daniel Dennett. Paul Churchland in 1979, I quote, confesses a strong inclination towards the denial and calls it very much a live option. And I know of at least two explicit denials published this year. One of the weirdest things the deniers say is that although it genuinely and undeniably seems that there's conscious experience, there isn't really any conscious experience. The seeming is in fact a complete illusion. But the trouble with this is well known. The trouble is that any such seeming or illusion is necessarily already an instance of the very thing that's being said to be an illusion. So suppose you're being hypnotized to feel pain. Someone might say you're not really in pain, that the pain is illusory because you haven't really suffered any bodily damage. But the reply is immediate, truly to seem to feel pain, just is to be in pain. It's, it's not possible to open up the gap between appearance and reality here, between is and seems. Between if you're doubled up on the ground because you've been hypnotized to believe that you've been shot in the stomach or that your children have been murdered, we do have a moral reason to end the hypnosis because the experience is real and awful. Well, I said earlier that it's easy to say what consciousness or experience is, but some philosophers not only deny the existence of it, they also characteristically claim not to know what is uh, being said to exist. Um, well, Ned Block dealt with this well in 1978, when he took over the reply that Louis Armstrong is said to have, made, have given to those who asked him what jazz was. He said, if you've got to ask, you ain't never going to know. Uh, and another response is almost as good. Um, I'm so bad at this. Um, 
Yeah, here we are. Um, although it's condemned by some Wittgensteinians. If someone asks what conscious experience is, you say, look, you know what it is from your own case. And if you want, you can add, here's an example, and give them a sharp kick. When it comes to conscious experience, there's a rock-bottom sense in which we're directly and fully acquainted with it just in having it, because the having is the knowing, as I like to say. So when people say that consciousness is a mystery, they're wrong, because we know what it is. In fact, we know exactly what it is. It's the most familiar thing there is, although that doesn't mean we can easily put it into words. But what people usually mean um, when they say that consciousness is a mystery is that it's mysterious how consciousness can be simply a matter of physical goings-on in the brain. And here they make a very large mistake um, in Winnie the Pooh's terminology. It has capital letters. This is the mistake of thinking we know enough about what physical stuff is to have good reason to think that the physical goings-on in the brain can't be conscious goings-on. The truth is rather that the nature of physical stuff is a mystery, except insofar as it is consciousness. So much for the definition of consciousness. Now for some history of ideas, the two proximal causes of the denial, and first, behaviourism. So behaviourism took off 100 years ago as a research programme in experimental psychology initiated for strictly methodological reasons by psychologists who themselves fully acknowledged the reality of conscious experience. Their objection to it wasn't that it didn't exist, but that they couldn't do proper science with it. The data provided by introspection were irredeemably imprecise. So in order to do proper science, psychology had to stick to publicly observable behavioral phenomena that are precisely measurable and quantifiable. The foundational text is usually agreed to be John Watson's paper, Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It, published in 1913. So this is the beginning of the 100 years. But Henry Maudsley, in fact, were, had raised essentially the same objection to the use of introspection in 1867. Um, and, and actually, Auguste Comte, 30 years earlier, had done so as well. And in 1911, two years before Watson's paper, the philosopher Edwin Singer wrote that consciousness is not something inferred from behaviour, it is behaviour. Although he quickly qualified this remark, it must be said. Singer was discussing the automatic sweetheart imagined by William James in 1908. A simulacrum of a woman, a soulless body absolutely indistinguishable from a spiritually animated maiden. And this is what philosophers today call a zombie. I never know which bit is showing. Um, well, met methodological behaviourism was a very good and fruitful idea. For a few years, all went well. Then the philosophers came on the scene and they transmogrified a methodology into a metaphysics. They took moderate methodological behaviourism, which puts consciousness aside and limits the scientific study of mind to behaviour, and they blew it up into mad metaphysical behaviourism, which claims that consciousness is nothing more than behaviour and or dispositions to behaviour. And the problem is clear. On this view, consciousness doesn't exist. Philosophical behaviourism is, as we say, eliminativist with respect to experience. That is, it denies the existence of behaviourism, of experience. It's a form of what's called reductive materialism, as the Cambridge philosopher C.D. Broad pointed out in 1925 when he introduced the term reductive materialism. Uh, no, no, say the proponents of reductionism. I, th I always think of them as a kind of massed choir. <laughs> they say, no, reduction is not elimination. And formally speaking, they're right. Formally speaking, to reduce X to Y isn't to say that X doesn't exist. It's simply to say that X is really just Y, that X is nothing more than Y, that X is nothing over and above Y, these are all phrases. And since Y is exhumed to exist, X also is held to exist. Because although X is nothing more than Y, it's also nothing less. When you reduce chemical processes to physical processes, you don't deny that chemical processes exist. That's all true. Um, and yet, to reduce consciousness to behaviour or dispositions to behaviour is... In fact, to eliminate it, it is to deny its existence. Given what consciousness is and what we know it to be, to say that it's really nothing more than behaviour or dispositions to behaviour is to say that it doesn't really exist. Um, 
Reductionists may continue to deny this or claim that it begs the question. And formally speaking, it does beg the question. And begging the question is a well-known theoretical sin. But sometimes when things get crazy enough, that is exactly what you have to do. Um, to see this, I think it helps to compare the reductionist theory of consciousness with the pizza theory of consciousness. This is the theory that consciousness is really just pizza. Formally speaking, the pizza theory fully allows that consciousness exists because pizza certainly exists. And the theory that consciousness is really just behaviour has exactly the same structure as the pizza theory. So it seems that philosophical behaviourism doesn't deny the existence of consciousness. But to say that the experience is just pizza is to deny that consciousness exists. It's to looking glass or reversify the word consciousness because we know that conscious experience exists and we know what it is like and we know that it isn't just pizza. I hope. So too for behaviour. To say that consciousness is just behaviour or dispositions to behaviour is to deny that consciousness exists. It's to looking glass the word consciousness because we know that consciousness experience exists and we know what it is like and we know that it isn't just behaviour. Well, so the, the, the comparison might seem harsh, but it is, it is in fact exact. So that's philosophical behaviourism. It's the first main version of the denial. Um, it was already stirring in 1921 when Russell published The Analysis of Mind, eight years after Watson's paper. It was clearly on the table four years later in 1925 when C.D. Broad devoted several pages to refuting it in his book, the mind and its place of na in nature. Although he worried that he might be accused of uh, breaking a butterfly on a wheel. Um, he, little did he know. Um, it may be that relatively few psychologists fell into outright philosophical behaviourism and that it was mostly an affliction of philosophers. There was um, cross-infection uh, because already in 1923 the distinguished psychologist Carl Lashley aimed to show that the statement I am conscious does not mean anything more than the statement that such and such physiological processes are going on within me. But even an austere psychologist like the beautifully named E.G. Boring, um, <laughs> one of the leading operationist psychologists in the mid-20th century, he still holds firmly in 1948 to the view that experience or, or consciousness is what you experience immediately. Two years later, however, in 1950, Brian Farrell in Oxford judges Boring's claim to be a, a, a comical and pathogenic remark. Farrell thinks better times are coming. Um, if Western societies truly assimilate the work of the relevant sciences, he thinks, then it is quite possible that the notion of experience will be generally discarded as delusive. As things are, it is only by restricting the use of the word experience to raw fields that we can go on defending the view that experience and behaviour are not identical. And this line of defence, he says, is hopeless. In the present state of our language, he says, the notion of experience can be shown to resemble an occult notion like witchcraft in a primitive community that is in the process of being acculturated to the West. Fortunately, he concludes, science is getting to the brink of rejecting experience as unreal or non-existent. So, at this point, the philosophers have, had left the psychologists in the dust in the race to folly. It seemed not to matter to the philosophers that even the arch-priest of psychological behaviourism, B.F. Skinner, was against them when he made it clear in 1953 that the objection to inner states is not that they do not exist, but that they are not relevant in a functional analysis. Well, Farrell's thoughts were echoed and varied by, among others, the radical philosopher of science Paul Feyerabend uh, in 62, Richard Rorty in 65, and in the vast upsurge of discussion of consciousness that followed the publication of the psychologist Ulin Place's paper Is Consciousness a Brain Process in 1956, and the Australian philosopher Jack Smart's paper Sensations and Brain Process in 1959. But by now something else was in play, because philosophers like Rorty were not or not primarily motivated by, motivated by behaviourist considerations in their denial of the existence of consciousness, their line of thought was in one striking respect far worse. Because it does at least follow from philosophical behaviourism that consciousness doesn't really exist. But these philosophers were motivated by a view 
a commitment to naturalism from which it doesn't even begin to follow that consciousness doesn't exist. How come? Uh, well, naturalism unsurprisingly states that everything that concretely exists is entirely natural. Nothing supernatural or otherwise non-natural exists. So given that we know that consciousness experience exists, we must, as naturalists, suppose that it's a wholly natural phenomenon. And so we should. Uh, because it's beyond reasonable doubt, it's really far beyond reasonable doubt, that experience like ours is wholly a matter of neural goings-on, wholly natural and wholly physical. The fact that this is so has been plain for a long time. It was already clear enough to Hobbes um, in 1641, and it was completely clear to Margaret Cavendish in 1664, and to Bernard de Fontenelle in 1700, whom Berlin called uh, the most civilised man of his time. Have I got that? Yes, and indeed of most times. As it was also to the only person who Berlin, in his writings, honoured directly with the description undeluded, and that's Leopardi in 1827, and many others. I suspect it was no less obvious to Shakespeare in 1606 when Macbeth supposed that when the brains were out, the man would die, except he was worried it was no longer the case. Um, but however that may be, the ever-increasing obviousness and availability of the fact that human consciousness is wholly a matter of neural goings-on is the foundation st stone for the current widespread commitment to materialism in the philosophy of mind. It's true that we can't understand how experience can be wholly a matter of neural goings-on in the brain when we start out from the way the brain appears to physics or neurophysiology. But there's no reason to suppose that the way the brain appears to physics or neurophysiology uh, should be given priority over the way it appears in the just in the having of experience. Rather the reverse, as Russell pointed out in 1927, annoying many and actually incurring a certain amount of ridicule when he began to say truly, and at the time rather thrillingly, that it is only the having of conscious experience that really gives us insight into the stuff of the brain because conscious experience is itself quite literally part of the stuff of the brain. Uh, he, I, he says, we know nothing of the intrinsic quality of physical phenomena except when they happen to be sensations and that therefore there is no reason to be surprised that some are sensations. Uh, it's true, again, that we can't understand how experience can be neural goings-on in the brain when we start out from physics or neurophysiology. But we can't understand quantum mechanics or gravity or dark energy either. And there's no reason to think that the inability of physics to give any characterization of consciousness constitutes an objection to the view that experience is wholly physical. To, to think this is to make an old and elementary mistake about what physics is and does. And I'll describe this mistake soon. For the moment, the situation is this. It's beyond reasonable doubt that experience is wholly neural, wholly physical matter. We have no idea how this can be so, given the other things we know and think we know about neural goings-on, but this is fine. Ignorance is to be expected. We know experience exists, and we know what it is, but we also know that we are in many ways profoundly ignorant of the fundamental nature of things. And the great naturalistic project, spearheaded by physics, hasn't dec de decreased our sense of fundamental ignorance. It has, on the contrary, increased it precisely because of its advances and successes. Ignoramus, we do not know, as the great German physiologist Emile dubois Raymond announced in 1872 when discussing how conscious experience can be neural goings-on. Ignorabimus, he went on to say, we will not know how conscious experience can be neural goings-on. So this is why I can't agree with Henry Perrone, the neurosurgeon in Ian McEwan's novel Saturday, who wonders whether it could, and I quote, ever be explained how matter becomes conscious, and can't begin to imagine a satisfactory account, that's all good, but knows it will come, the secret will be revealed. Over decades, as long as the scientists and the institutions remain in place, the explanations will refine themselves into an irrefutable truth about consciousness. So I'm just, I'm not holding my breath. So here we are. Uh, we are, I hope, naturalists, passionate naturalists. We are therefore, and of course, outright realists about consciousness. And we understand and we confess our ignorance. So it really, what now? It's time to get back to work on specific problems, physical, psychological, and philosophical. But now something extraordinary happens. 
In the middle of the 20th century, members of a small but influential group of analytic philosophers who consider themselves to be standard bearers for a truly rigorous naturalism formed the view that true naturalistic materialism rules out realism about consciousness. Good. Uh, so they conclude that consciousness doesn't exist. How is this possible? Well, let me try. I'm going to try and set it out in nice philosophical small steps. Here we go. Um, they, they, um, so they reach their conclusion in spite of the fact that, number one, consciousness is a wholly natural phenomenon. Yes. Um, it's, it's a thoroughly common or garden natural phenomenon, at least on this planet. And they reach it in spite of the fact that, two, consciousness is a wholly natural phenomenon whose existence is certain. And in spite of the fact that, three, consciousness is a wholly natural phenomenon with whose nature we are directly acquainted, at least in certain fundamental respects. Unfazed by one to three, and perhaps even somewhat contemptuous of one to three, these philosophers cleave to a conception of the natural, according to which experience isn't and can't be a natural phenomenon, so they endorse the denial. First, and as observed, as observed, almost all these philosophers, perhaps all of them, take naturalism to imply materialism, and that's fine by me. And just like Descartes, they claim that conscious experience can't possibly be wholly physical. Like Descartes, or rather the official Descartes, they think they know this. And since as naturalists they think that everything that exists is natural, and as specifically materialist naturalists, that everything natural is uh, physical, sorry, I don't there, they're obliged to conclude that consciousness doesn't really exist. That's seven, because seven follows logically from four to six. So they become eliminativists with respect to consciousness, although many of them conceal this by using the word consciousness to mean something that has essentially nothing to do with consciousness. In particular, they think that uh, the existence of consciousness, this is eight, is incompatible with the findings of natural science, in particular physics. Well, the immediate inevitable corollary of eight given two is, this is how we do it, philosophers, is nine. Physics is false. But they don't draw this conclusion, nor do they give up for the Cartesian claim that causes all the trouble. Instead, they endorse the denial. Well, the denier's alliance with Descartes is uh, really rum, because they routinely revile Descartes. And it gets a lot rummer when one reflects that all their materialist forebears, stretching back over, over 2,000 years to atomist materialists like Euclidus and Democritus, all of them completely reject the view that experience can't be physical. They hold, as all serious materialists must, that experience is wholly physical. Russell made the key ob observation again in 1927. We do not know enough of the intrinsic character of events outside us to say whether it does or does not differ from that of mental events, whose nature we do know. He never wavered from this point, and constantly stressed that any remotely plausible theory of the nature of reality had to suppose an absolutely fundamental continuity between our own mental events, whose nature we do know, and all other events in reality. In 1948, he noticed that physics simply can't tell us, I quote, whether the physical world is or is not different in intrinsic character from the world of mind. In 1956, he remarked that we know nothing of the intrinsic quality of physical events, except when these are mental events that we directly experience. But the deniers weren't listening, and they still aren't. They're still in bed with Descartes, even as they continue to ridicule his other views. This is a fine irony, and it's compounded by the fact that behind his official front, and in the face of the unanswerable objections that Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia put to him in their correspondence, Descartes himself felt that he hadn't, in fact, been able to rule out the possibility he discussed with the Dutch philosoph philosopher Regis, the possibility that mind could be a mode of corporeal substance. So the question is this. Why do these 20th century eliminative materialists ignore a long line of distinguished materialist predecessors and ally themselves with Descartes, of all people, their sworn enemy, in holding that experience can't possibly be physical, thereby obliging themselves to endorse the denial. The answer appears to be this, so I'll put those nine back. They appear to share with Descartes and Leibniz and many others at the time one very large assumption, the assumption that, ten, 
we have got the nature of the physical pretty much taped, at least in certain very fundamental respects. More moderately, they share the assumption that we can know that 4 is true. That is, that 11, we know enough about the physical to be sure consciousness can't be physical. They take it that we have a theory of the physical that is not only essentially correct as far as it goes, in spite of difficulties with things like quantum gravity and so on, but also goes all the way, at least in certain fundamental respects, and in particular in allowing us to be certain that 4 is true, that experience ain't physical. Well, it's easy to see how in Descartes' day, the high and heady days of corpuscularian contact mechanics, that 10 or 11 might have seemed to be correct. Matter, according to corpuscularian mechanics, consisted of little bits with various shapes bumping into each other and hooking up with each other in various ways. There was nothing more to it. And it seemed evident that it couldn't possibly be or be the vehicle or ground of consciousness. Looking back, that intuition looks pretty excusable. Certainly, it seems more excusable than today, when relativistic quantum field theory has dissolved the gritty particles of the past into fleeting, particle-like appearances, which are not well thought of as persisting things. They're just appearances produced by changing energy levels in the set of vibratory motions in fields. And here I really like... I'm getting behind myself, probably. I like David Wallace's comment, who's at Balliol. He, he says, the popular impression of particle physics is about the behavior of little, lots of little point particles whizzing about. That bears about as much relation to real particle physics as the earth, air, fire, water theory of matter bears to the periodic table. Well, we can see why 10 and 11 might have seemed plausible in the 17th century. But they were unwarranted then as now, as Hobbes and others already saw, and as Hume also saw. Uh, the Cartesians, Hume remarked, established it as a principle that we are perfectly acquainted with the essence of matter, and that was a very large mistake. 250 years later, in 1994, one of the most influential philosophers of our time, David Lewis, makes precisely the same mistake. He asks us, I quote, to remember that the physical nature of ordinary matter under mild conditions is very well understood. Well, that isn't the claim of perfect acquaintance, it's true, but it is a version of 10. And it's the central part of a position according to which 11, we know enough about the physical to be sure that experience can't be physical. So even when David Lewis went wrong, but he's simply one of the most distinguished of many false materialists who, who claim that 12, the mind-body identity theory, is true in some version, but who also believe 13, to believe in the existence of consciousness is to deny the identity of mental phenomena and physical. The trouble is that if you buy 12 and 13, you have to say that consciousness is no part of mind, and that's silly. Um, okay, so the conclusion, I think, is secure. Lewis and all the other full materialists, they actually reject mind-body identity, although they claim to, in, to endorse it. You can't claim to assert the identity of two seemingly distinct things when you simply leave out one of the two seemingly distinct things you're claiming to be really the same thing. These philosophers should have listened more carefully to Russell or, or Herbert Feigl in 1958 or Grover Maxwell in 1978 or Thomas Nagel or many others. They should have paid more heed to Quine, the, the great exemplar W.V. Quine, who was renowned for his reductive passion and his commitment to naturalism, but who was also fully realist about what, in 1981, he called the heady luxuriance of experience, experience in all its richness. So, general disaster. And a further mystery. For one of the strangest things about the spread of the naturalism-based denial in the second half of the 20th century is that it involved overlooking a point about physics that was a commonplace in philosophical discussions of mind in the first half of the century. I call this the silence of physics. Physics is magnificent. Vast numbers of its claims are either straightforwardly true or very good approximations to truth. The periodic table is onto something fundamental about the ultimate nature of concrete reality. So are formula like F equals MA e equals MC squared, the inverse square laws, and so on. But crucially, all these truths about the physical, outright or approximate, 
are expressed by statements of number or equations, mathematical equations featuring various constants in addition to various numbers, and mathematical functions. They are, as such, truths about quantities and relational structures instantiated in reality, truths that don't tell us anything at all about the intrinsic, non-structural nature of the thing or things that exemplify them. So Eddington, Eddington is one of my heroes, He's, his assessment of the situation in 1928 is as true now as it was then. Something unknown is doing what we don't know what. That is what our theory, physics, amounts to. It does not sound a particularly illuminating theory. I have read something like it elsewhere. The slithy toves did gyre and gimbal in the wave. There is the same suggestion of activity. There is the same indefiniteness as to the nature of the activity and of what it is that it is doing. And yet, from so unpromising a beginning, we really do get somewhere. We bring into order a host of apparently unrelated phenomena. We make predictions, and our predictions come off. The reason, the sole reason for this progress is that our description is not limited to unknown agents executing unknown activities, but numbers are scattered freely in this description. To, to contemplate um, electrons circulating in the atom is, carries us no further, but by contemplating eight circulating electrons in one atom and seven circulating atoms in another, we begin to realise the difference between oxygen and nitrogen. Eight slithy toves gyre and gimbal in the oxygen wave and seven in nitrogen. Um, physics is mathematical, Russell wrote a year earlier in 27, not because we know so much about the physical world, but because we know so little. The physical world, we wrote, he wrote in 1948, is only known as regards certain abstract features of its space-time structure. We know nothing about the events that make matter except their space-time structure. So the point is simple. Physics may tell us a great deal about the structure of physical reality insofar as it can be logico-mathematically described, but it can't tell us anything about the intrinsic nature of reality insofar as its intrinsic nature is more than its structure. Well, there's a lot to say about that, but my present historical chance, task is just to record it. Note that it was highly visible in the 20s and 30s, the 1920s and 30s, and that it was completely occluded in philosophy of mind in the second half of the 20th century. And the fact that it destroys the position of many of those today who covertly or overtly uh, endorse the naturalism-based denial. When we re realise, when we really realise, here's Eddington again, uh, that our knowledge of the objects treated in physics consists solely of a schedule of pointer readings on instrument dials and other indicators. And in Eddington's words again, we must ask, what knowledge have we of the nature of atoms that renders it at all incongruous that they should constitute a thinking that is experiencing our conscious object? And the answer to that is none. The schedule is, um, this is him again, the schedule is, we agreed, we agree, attached to some unknown background, but it is precisely his own, that's his, his word, it's ungetatable. So, he concludes, it seems rather silly to prefer to attach it to something of a so-called concrete nature, inconsistent with thought, by which he means consciousness, and then to wonder where the thought comes from. Uh, everybody forgot that. Uh, I actually got a couple more from Hawking, but I'm not going to read them out. Uh, Hawking makes the point that we don't know the nature of the stuff. So when, as passionate, hard-nosed, physicalist, naturalists, with noses as hard as you like, we consider the problem of consciousness, we encounter the silence of physics. The self-styled naturalists seem to ignore this point about what physics is and does. They rely instead on an imaginative picture of the physical, a feeling picture that goes radically beyond anything that physics tells us or could tell us. They are, in Russell's words again, I'm, I'm losing my... PowerPoint here. Yeah. Uh, this is Russell. They are guilty unconsciously and in spite of explicit disavowals of a confusion in their imaginative picture of reality. A picture that's provably incorrect if physicalism is true, because if it's true, then consciousness is wholly physical, but it's excluded from the picture. So the facts of the denial are now before us, the oh so 20th century facts. And we have an account of how they arose. They arose from a mistaken interpretation 
of the behaviorism and then from a mistake about what a naturalistic attitude requires. I think, though, that we still lack a satisfactory explanation of the denial as long as we lack a satisfactory explanation of how these mistakes could have been made. How could anybody ever have been led to do something so silly as to deny the existence of conscious experience the only general thing we know for certain to exist? How is that possible? Wie ist das möglich? As Kant would say. Well, this question brings me to my somewhat pessimistic peroration. It's an attempt to explain how the silliest thing that has ever been said came to be said. I think the explanation is, in fact, simple, and it's pretty old. So at this point, I'm simply going to hand over this talk to my elders and betters. But first, a preparatory aside. <clears throat> There's a pamphlet that circulates among philosophers that offers humorous definitions of philosophers' names in the light of their views and style. Thus, a strawson is the descendant of a straw man a position obscurely descended from a position never occupied. And that, that definition is based on my dad, I have to say. Um, quine is a verb. To quine something is to resi deny resolutely the existence of something real and significant. Uh, Berlin, more attractively, is an old-fashioned stagecoach filled with international travellers, all talking rapidly and telling anecdotes of vivid life elsewhere. So, um, so... Here's, a, here's an illustrative quotation. As the Berlin came to town, one could hear many accents one had never heard before and delightful tales. I hope you heard that. So for the rest of the talk, you can imagine that the Berlin has been halted and you can overhear what is going on inside. I'm tempted to do the accents, but I don't think I can sustain. So Cicero speaks first. Um, he says, the fact is, there is no statement so absurd that no philosopher will make it. <laughs> And my friend Louise Anthony agrees. In, oh, I'm, my PowerPoint's gone wrong. She says, there is no banality so banal that no philosopher will deny it. Um, I'm getting a bit lost. And here's Descartes. Nothing can be imagined which is too strange or incredible to have been said by some philosopher. And Thomas Reed, who's quite mischievous, he says, there, he almost, he, must, he doesn't say it's Cicero, but he basically repeats it. There is nothing so absurd which some philosophers have not maintained. Uh, he was actually, he particularly enjoyed abusing Hume. And he said this, he followed up one of his misrepresentations of one of Hume's views by saying, it's like a hobby horse, which a man in bad health may ride in his closet without hurting his reputation. But if he should take him with, abroad with him to church or to the exchange, his heirs would immediately call a jury and seize his estate. Um, oh, and here's Descartes again. Um, when it comes to speculative matters, the scholar will take the more pride in his views the further they are from common sense, since he will have had to use so much more skill and ingenuity in rendering them plausible. And C.D. Broad agrees um, 300 later. Some ideas are, I quote, so preposterously silly that only very learned men could have thought of them. And so, silly, silly does seem the perfect word in this context, and Broad being a uh, a rigorous man offers an explicit definition of the term. By a silly theory, I mean one which may be held at the time when one is talking or writing professionally, but which only an inmate of a lunatic asylum would think of carrying into daily life. Um, well, we know silliness happens, but we may still wonder how it is possible. Uh, one poss perhaps we need to add in one of the brilliant details of Darwin's theory of evolution into the explanatory mix and his theory of sexual selection. Perhaps wild views are like peacock's tails, or perhaps, um, um, here's another psychoanalytical. Oh, but we could turn psychoanalytical. It can seem exciting to hold views that seem preposterously, preposterously contrary to common sense. There seems to be something Oedipally thrilling about it, where the father figure is an old gentleman called ordinary opinion. Feigl made another suggestion in 1967. I quote, scholars cathet, that is, they invest certain ideas so strongly and their outlook becomes so ego-involved that they erect elaborate barricades of defences to protect their pet ideas from the blows or the slower corrosive effects of criticism. Uh, well, these facts are surely part of the explanation of why, as Hobbes notes in 1645, arguments seldom work on men of wit and learning 
when they have once engaged themselves in a contrary opinion. I mean, I've been talking about philosophy of mind with people for 35 years, and I don't think anyone's ever changed their mind. Um, Descartes is right again when he says, it frequently happens that even when we know that something is false, we get used to hearing it and thus gradually get into the habit of regarding it as true. Confident assertion and frequent repetition are the two ploys that are more often effective than the most weighty arguments when dealing with ordinary people or those, including philosophers, who do not examine things carefully. Um, and this is what psychologists now call the familiarity effect or the mere exposure effect. And it's very well described in Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Well, yes, yes, you might say, but really, how is it possible? And um, once I, again, I have to turn to Russell. Um, Russell's can say something, uh, philosophers can say something this absurd, he says, writing in 1940, because they have a long training in absurdity. Russell thinks, in fact, that there are things that only philosophers with a long training in absurdity could succeed in believing. And actually, as he says this, he may have George Orwell in mind, who, reviewing Russell's book Power, published a year earlier, wrote um, that if there are certain pages of Mr. Burton Russell's book Power that seem rather empty, that is merely to say that we have now sunk to a depth at which the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. Well, some people are untroubled by the fact that there's so much foolishness. Philosophy, for some, is, above all, a form of agonistic play, uh, as, as the Dutch historian Huitzinger once remarked. Some find a kind of joy in it, either naturally or because they cultivate uh, theoretical polymorphous perversity, perhaps in the manner of late Feyerabend. A good number of philosophers aren't really much concerned with truth rather than with ingenuity, kind of Rube Goldberg, Professor Brainstorm stuff. Many, however, can't help caring intensely about truth, even as they smile with Santayana when he begins a book with the charming words, here is one more system of philosopher. philosophy. If the reader is tempted to smile, I can assure him that I smile with him. But, okay, I've been slanging off philosophers, but it isn't just philosophers. All scholars are in the dock. Um, and now Mark Twain generalises the point to the whole species, noting in 1906 that there isn't anything so grotesque or so incredible that the average human being can't believe it. Dan Kahneman backs up uh, Twain's claim with experimental data. He says, we know that people can maintain an unshakable faith in any proposition, however absurd, when they are sustained by a community of like-minded believers. We are, as a species, horribly adept at doublethink, double bookkeeping of a sort that allows us to hold two beliefs that are, in fact, inconsistent. And now, Sir Francis Bacon steps in, in 1620. Once the human mind has favoured certain views, it pulls everything else into agreement with and support for them. Should they be outweighed by more powerful countervailing considerations, it either fails to notice these or scorns them or makes fine distinctions in order to, to neutralise and so reject them, thereby preserving untouched the authority of their previous position. Well, that's, that is my baseline explanation of how philosophers in the 20th century came to hold the silliest view ever held in the history of human thought. Here, truly, was Leopardi, says the lovely Leopardi, the poor old human intellect has behaved more childishly than in any other matter. He was actually talking about the mind-body issue. Well, is it really the, the silliest view? I'd be happy to argue this point with anyone who thinks they can come up with something sillier. I've tried. So at one point I thought Anaxagoras might be in the running when he claimed that the mind or soul is a self-moving number. But this suggestion, apart from being rather cool, is not in the same league as the claim that experience doesn't exist. Next to the denial, every known religious belief is only a little less sensible than the belief that grass is green. And so it falls to philosophy, not religion, to reveal the deepest weirdness of the human mind. And I do find this upsetting, but at least philosophy doesn't have so much blood on its hands. Well, truth, especially difficult truth, does not, on the whole, prevail in philosophy. It often emerges in patches and finds favour for a while, but then it sinks back down again under layers of misdirected cleverness, carelessness and stupidity. 
Schopenhauer, in 1819, thinks that truth is granted only a short victory celebration between the two long periods of time when it is condemned as paradoxical or disparaged as trivial. And I think Alain Berlin would have agreed, and so do I, except that I don't think that anything in philosophy is ever seriously disparaged by being called trivial, because to be trivial is at least to be true, and that is already pretty good in philosophy. And actually, I, have to, I remember a meeting of Freddie Ayer's Oxford Tuesday group in, in Queen's College about 25 years ago, or more maybe, at which Brian McGuinness had given a paper and he was rather nervously replying to questions. And when someone objected to one of his responses by saying, but surely that's trivial, McGuinness paused for a long moment and then replied, I hope it's trivial. <laughs> so, look, Schopenhauer was pessimistic. Um, where am I here? <clears throat> That's not news. Even so, I don't suppose he ever imagined that the existence of consciousness would be doubted or denied. I suspect that he would have agreed with William James. Wait. Oops. Sorry. I'm so bad at this. Where is it gone? Yes. William James said, there is but one indefectibly certain truth. And that is the truth that even the most extreme or pyrrhonistic scepticism itself leaves standing. The truth that the present phenomenon of consciousness exists. This is, he wrote, the inconcussum, the unknockable out thing, in a world most of whose other facts have at times um, tottered in the breath of philosophic doubt. But Schopenhauer, like James, hadn't reckoned with the 20th century. And I don't think even his famous pessimism could have prepared him for the denial. Well, I just say in conclusion that recent political events have made these observations about human credulity seem vastly less surprising than they did two or three years ago when I took up this topic. But still, when it comes to silliness, I still think that the denial of the existence of consciousness takes the biscuit. Thank you. <laughs>